It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no pizza. And I'm the clatter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, Mr. Jim's other gangs in the government for hiring a combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. In the dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. This is the hour of doom. And bloom. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an interesting interval of intellect in an unintelligent world. <laughs> Boy, that was pretty good. Hey, I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find Amazing. posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, we are the watchers on the wall. Yes. <laughs> and we watch it all for you to find that silver lining and all those scary storm clouds on the horizon. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a persnickety possum? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but in this time of active shooters, terrorist attacks, all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff, you crazy. better have that really. You better have some medical knowledge under your belt if you expect to handle some of the emergencies that you could possibly face in times of trouble. But never fear, we are here, and we're not just here for the beer. <laughs> we're not. What do you think of that? Nope. All we're right. here for the, the food, the barbecue, <laughs> the movies. <laughs> Anything but, right? Hey, do you have some nuggets of knowledge in that noggin of yours that you want us to know? That's a lot of ends. <laughs> of course you do. So out with it. We learn as much from you as you do from us. That should be obvious. So get in touch with us. It's easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on our Facebook group at Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. Plus, American Survival Radio in association with Genesis Communications Network. And we talk about all the news that affects, well, America's survival. Right. Not so much a medical show, though we do talk about medical topics, but mm-hmm. more current events, I guess. Absolutely. I, I would say that sums it right up. Plus, this podcast, not only on our channel, but on the great networks like Prepper Broadcasting, Network, USA, Emergency Broadcasting Network, The Rival Central, Shake and Wake, and apparently a lot of others. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot, but it's not all. Just make sure that you go to our website at doomandbloom.net. It's got everything you need to succeed. Even if everything else fails, don't forget our three-category Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook. Check out our articles in leading magazines like American Survival Guide, Survival Quarterly, Backwoods Home, Prepare, Survivalist, Woo! <laughs> Another I, long list. Man, I cannot. Well, we're doing too <laughs> much stuff. Good. Well, we're we doing are. way too much stuff. We really stuff. are. We need a vacation, honey. What or do you think? something. Recently, we talked about upper respiratory infections and colds and how to tell a cold from a flu. But we also mentioned that flus can lead to pneumonia. Pneumonia is actually what could kill a person. Pneumonia. Oh, I do that is a very. talk about pneumonia. Very and, scary. Scary medical right. problem. And I'm sure you already have this written down, but what's its nickname? It's the old man's friend. The old man's friend. That's that's sad way to describe this. Well, but you know, when you are a mess and you're 95 years old and... 105. And, yeah, 105 years 95, old. 95, you yeah, could still be going strong. Yeah, honey. you might be yeah, or going strong. Is that what they call it? You know what? It might just be a good thing for an old man. Might just welcome it. Oh, you know, I wanted to just say before we start mm-hmm. talking about that... A, of course, even with modern medical technology, most of us can't avoid the occasional respiratory infection without adhering really strictly to sanitary protocol. Boy, I'll tell you, it would be really easy in a survival situation for your entire community to come down with cold, sinusitis, influenza, gosh, just about anything, even pneumonia. Common colds may be caused by any of, gosh, two, about probably 100, 200 different viruses. At least. But influenza comes from viruses mostly in the influenza A, B, and C categories. And matter of fact, influenza A is the cause of most of the pandemics that we've seen of influenza over the course of time. Uh, the Russian flu in 1889, 1990, that caused a million deaths. Spanish flu, which caused 50 to 100 million deaths. That was in 1918. Everyone knows about that. There have been others more recent. The Asian flu in 1957 killed a million people. The Hong Kong flu in 68, 69, 750,000. Even the swine flu just four years ago, five years ago, caused 18,000 deaths, specifically from that above the normal amount that die from pneumonia among the, uh, the elderly and the very young. The interesting thing about influenza is that most of the deaths caused by influenza aren't caused by the virus itself. They're caused by bacterial pneumonia that sets in as a secondary infection when patient's immune system is weakened by the virus. Most respiratory infections are spread by particles, viral particles. The organisms that cause these infections, they live up to 48 hours on common household surfaces, such as kitchen counters and doorknobs, stuff like that. And they can easily travel four to six feet when somebody sneezes. Respiratory issues are usually divided into upper and lower respiratory infections. The upper respiratory tract is considered to be anything at the level of the vocal cords or above. Vocal cords are also known as the larynx, laryngitis, I'm sure you've heard of. The diagnosis is usually related to the 
part of the upper respiratory system that's affected. So therefore, if you have an infection of the nose or inflammation of the nose, you have rhinitis. If you have a sinus infection, you have a sinusitis. If you have a tonsil infection, you have tonsillitis. If your ear is infected, you have otitis. The suffix itis, I-T-I-S, just simply means inflammation of. The lower respiratory tract involves the windpipe, the lower part of the windpipe, the airways, which taken together we call bronchi, and the lungs themselves, which have uh, material within them. In other words, the cells that actually absorb oxygen, those are called alveoli. Now, the most common cause of infectious disease in developed countries is indeed respiratory infections like this, like bronchitis and pneumonia and things like that, and of course, the common cold. Now, symptoms of the common cold, fever, cough, sore throat, runny nose, nasal congestion, headaches, sneezing, everybody knows about that. But symptoms of lower respiratory infections, they include those, but they also involve oftentimes a deep cough with phlegm. When a cough has phlegm, is producing mucus that comes out on your tissue, we call it a productive cough. You may have higher fevers, you'll have shortness of breath perhaps, and you, of course you'll be very fatigued, you'll feel like you've been beaten up. Most respiratory infections start causing symptoms one to three days after exposure to the organism, and then they last about seven to ten days if they're an upper infection, and if if they get down there, it usually lasts longer. There's differences between a common cold and influenza that make it helpful to make a diagnosis. They're similar, but they're more likely or more severe in one or the other. Influenza, a high fever is a very common thing, whereas it's a rare thing with a cold. Headaches are common with influenza, maybe a little less common with colds. Nasal congestion and sore throat, upper symptoms are more common with colds than they are with influenza, with, uh, with influenza and certainly with pneumonia. But cough is usually severe with influenza leading to pneumonia and mild with cough. Of course, aches and pain, general fatigue and ill feeling is worse with pneumonia. For influenza, of course, they give antiviral medicines, uh, Tamiflu, Relenza are two common ones used in the U.S. They shorten the course of the infection if, they, if you take them, but only if you take them in the first 48 hours after symptoms appear. After the first 48 hours, they have very little medicinal effect whatsoever. Now, the interesting thing is that you, if you're a caregiver, you can take instead of the two pills a day or two capsules a day that you would take if you are a victim of influenza, you would take one capsule a day and it might have a preventative effect. You take it for a total of five days and it might get you, the caregiver, through this without getting the virus yourself. Of course, for colds, there's not much you can do other than concentrate your treatment on the area involved, nasal congestion medication for runny noses, sore throat lozenges for strep throat, things like that, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, of course, muscle aches and fevers. Now, steam inhalation and good hydration also give you some symptomatic relief for nasal congestion. Various natural remedies are also useful to relieve symptoms, and we're going to discuss that in just a minute. Most upper respiratory infections are caused by viruses. Some sore throats are caused, I think I mentioned the word strep throat, that they're actually caused by a bacteria, and that's called beta streptococcus. These patients often have little small white spots on the back of their throat and tonsils, if they have tonsils, and they're candidates for antibiotics. So take a look, say, ah, that's why your doctor tells you to say, ah, you can take a look there. And if you see little white spots in people that have cold or flu-like symptoms, amoxicillin, or the veterinary equivalent, which is called fishmox, or keflex, which is fish flex, are some of the drugs that would work, especially if you're not allergic to penicillin. If you're allergic to penicillin, you can take fishmycin, which is erythromycin drugs. You have to make sure they come in the human dosage of erythromycin, which should be 500 milligrams. 
In most cases, it's not appropriate to use antibacterial agents. I just want to tell people that for upper respiratory infections, they're usually viral and antibiotics will only kill bacteria and will not have an effect against viruses for upper respiratory infections. Your overuse of antibiotics has led to resistance on the part of some organisms to a lot of these common drugs and some of the older antibiotics have been rendered almost useless as a result, for example, penicillin in the treatment of many illnesses. Lower respiratory infections, pneumonia, they're the most common cause of death from infectious disease in developed countries. These can be caused by viruses or bacteria. Oftentimes, you'll find a bacterial pneumonia. The more serious nature of these infections lead many practitioners to use antibiotics more often to treat the condition than they would for a cold. A lot of bronchitis is caused by viruses. So you have to be aware that they may not work, but once they get into the lungs themselves, and the person usually is very weak and a much higher chance of having a bacterial pneumonia. People at risk will, will have had a cold or the flu, but seem to be having worsening shortness of breath or thicker phlegm over the course of time despite the usual therapy. There's a school of thought that recommends, as a result, really liberal use of antibiotics in sick persons over the age of 60 or those with other serious medical conditions because this population has a higher risk of death because of decreased resistance to secondary bacterial infections. Both upper and lower respiratory infections are different from asthma, remember. Asthma is a condition where airways become constricted in a spasm causing a particularly vocal kind of breathing called a wheeze. <coughs> is sort of what it sounds like. Asthma may, cause, may occur as an allergic response or may be associated with some respiratory infections such as childhood croup. The treatment of asthma involves different medicines altogether than colds or flus. We'll talk about that some other time. Antihistamines, epinephrine, things like that. Good respiratory hygiene, that is the important thing to prevent patients from respiratory with respiratory infections from transmitting their disease to others. Practicing good hygiene is not only a good strategy for you and your family, demonstrates social responsibility, could prevent a pandemic, goodness knows. This is what you have to do. Sick individuals, cover their mouth and noses with tissues, dispose of those tissues safely, Use a mask if you're coughing. Others that care for the sick, they may wear special masks called N95s. We'll talk about that another time. But the simple ear loop masks are fine for the afflicted person to wear. Caregivers should always perform rigorous hand hygiene before and after contact. Wash with soap, warm water for 15 seconds. Clean your hands with uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizers. If they appear soiled, use soap and water. For sure, the alcohol-based hand sanitizer doesn't help much for that. Sick persons should always keep at least four feet away from other persons, if possible, due to droplet spreads. We've talked uh, about uh, the survival sick room and how a barrier is very important to separate the healthy from the sick. And make sure you wash down all possibly contaminated surfaces, such as kitchen counters, doorknobs, with an appropriate disinfectant. Even dilute bleach in half a cup of bleach in a five-gallon bucket of water probably would be fine. Isolate the sick individual in, in a sick room, separate from people who have injuries that are not sick with infections. And medical care providers must wear gloves at all times when they treat the patient. The important thing that everybody needs to know is you should not self-medicate with antibiotics unless you have absolutely no access to modern medical care. If there is a modern medical professional out there that can check you out and has the medicines to take care of you, please use those instead. Don't use animal antibiotics or anything like that, even though I'm the guy who first started talking, one of the guys that first started talking about. It. Many of the strategies and treatments deal with respiratory infections quite well, but what happens if pharmaceuticals aren't available because of some major catastrophe? We've got to look then to our medicinal garden. I keep telling you, you should put together a medicinal garden. This may be the time to do it. 
Vitamin C, vitamin E, antioxidants also very useful. You take them regularly, they're supposed to decrease the frequency and severity of respiratory infections. Antibiotic support of the immune system is always a good thing, but you could also obtain it through good nutrition as well. Make sure that you have the right food in your medical storage. Natural remedies are usually meant to target individual symptoms like nasal congestion or fever. Some would be clove bud oil, tea tree oil, lavender oil. Use these in direct inhalation therapy. Put two or three drops on the palm of your hand. Rub your hands together, warm the oil, then bring your hands to to your nose and mouth. Breathe three to five times slowly and deeply, and then relax. Breathe normally for two minutes. Repeat the process. Wipe any excess oil you have over your throat and chest. There are herbs that you might can use internally. Uh, I don't want you to use the essential oils internally, but the herbs I want you to. Good teas are elderberry, echinacea, licorice root, golden seal, chamomile, peppermint, ginseng. Those are good. Garlic and onion oil, fresh cinnamon, cayenne pepper, all of these things have antibacterial action. And, of course, raw and processed honey is one of my favorites. Apple cider vinegar, another one of my favorites. Oh, one more thing. They actually have antiviral properties also. That's right. There's just a lot of benefit to having these things around. They have to be in your medical storage for Fever, a tease with echinacea, licorice root, yarrow, fennel, catnip, and lemon balm are very useful. Of course, the underbark of willow, poplar, and aspen trees have salicin, the essential ingredient in aspirin. Strip off the outer bark, take several strips of the green underbark, make a tea out of it. It should work like aspirin does to decrease fever. A fever could also be dealt with with sponge baths, uh, with cool water, and sometimes people use vinegar. I think that that's very useful. As well, to deal with congestion, you would use an inhalation method using steam. Steam inhalation is awesome. A few drops of an essential oil into steaming water. Lower your face to cover the vapors. Cover the back of your head with a towel to concentrate the steam. You should be using eucalyptus oil, rosemary, anise, uh, or anise, peppermint, tea tree, like tea tree, especially pine, and thyme oils are acceptable for this. If you prefer to drink your nasal congestion relief, <laughs> uh, licorice root, peppermint, anise, cayenne pepper, sage, and dandelion. Yep, pinch of cayenne. Mix it with honey, drink three to four times a day, and that's good. Of course, fresh horseradish, everybody knows, opens your airways. Take mm-hmm. a quarter teaspoon orally three times a day. That would probably work. And, of course, your neti pot, uh, if you have the ability to have sterile saline sterile, solution, it exactly. has to be sterile. Very important. Yeah, uh, right? is used by both traditional and alternative healers and of course aches and pains eucalyptus camphor of course lavender peppermint rosemary arnica oil diluted is i think really really good as a tea passion flower chamomile valerian root willow underbark as i had mentioned before ginger feverfew and rosemary awesome stuff drink warm with raw honey three to four times a day i just wanted to say that a study in israel used a substance found in elderberry so known as sambucol sambucol or is it sambucol i think it's sambucol okay the study found that those who had given it who were given it, had substantially shorter periods of flu symptoms than others that were given placebos. So it might have strong antioxidant effects, strengthen the immune system. It's called Sambucol, S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L. A lot of you have heard about it. Doesn't this appear to affect people with a cold as much as it does with the flu? I've heard a lot of people say that they love it. Okay. So it's it's been used a lot as far as research studies. There are a few out there. But mostly you just hear from people saying that they tried it and it's worked for years, years and years, generations for people. So I'd have to say it's it's proven. All right. You so go, girl. Get some. Oh, I wanted to mention something with regards to how to identify pneumonia in a person who 
is sick. And for that, you need to use a stethoscope, and that's something that should be part of the medic's medical supplies. Shows have a stethoscope and maybe a blood pressure cuff. Good ideas to have these things available in good times or bad. And I think that it makes a lot of sense to listen to lungs of people that are feeling poorly from a respiratory infection. You want to hear if it's gone all the way down in the lungs. To do this, you really need to practice listening to people during normal times. And the further out you get from the windpipe, the more fine that sounds are going to be like. They're going to sound much more like... Then you would hear if you put the stethoscope near the windpipe, and it's going to be much more coarse, like, <sighs> of course, this is me making noise, and it may not be exactly what it sounds like, but this is something you should practice. So the closer you are to the windpipe, when you listen with a stethoscope, it sounds like snoring type of sound. It's, it's more coarse sounding and sounds more fine as you get out all the way down to the lung bases near the diaphragm. To determine if somebody has pneumonia, you'll hear something that sounds like a crackle. These are called rowels, R-A-L-E-S. These sound like crackling or crinkling sounds, like when you crinkle up a piece of paper, for example. Crinkle it. So when you're listening in and you hear that crinkly, crackly sound, then you might have an inkling that there is something going on with regards to pneumonia. That that sound is made by fluid that has air going through the fluid, sort of it's sort of like a bubbling, but it ends up sounding more like a crackling. So those are called rowels, and this is how you would identify pneumonia. One of the ways to identify pneumonia, of course, the other one is on x-ray, which in a survival setting, you're just not going to have available. I just wanted to point that out before we finish this segment. Learning how to identify sounds like this is one of the parts of our eight-hour class that we give throughout the country. This is something that you might want to learn if you're going to be medically responsible in times of trouble. Hey, it's obvious that with all the trials and tribulations that accompany the aftermath of a disaster, that certainly you're going to have problems getting sleep. But not having sleep affects your work efficiency at a time when you need to be at 110 at 110% effectiveness. And so I think we need to talk a little bit about sleep deprivation. We actually got a request for a little talk on that. And so let's let's discuss that. Now, of course, as a practicing obstetrician in the early part of my medical career, I can tell you that delivering babies at 4 a.m. in the morning is just not conducive to a good sleep pattern. You had the same I concur 100%, honey. (laughs) Those babies just don't know how to deliver during the day hours. That's true. And, you know, (laughs) lack of sleep is called sleep deprivation. can be an acute or a chronic condition, depending on what's going on. Of course, in a survival situation, you can imagine the many reasons why you might suffer from not enough sleep, unfamiliar environments, increased responsibilities, fatigue from strenuous activities, plain old stress. That will combine to greatly increase the incidence of disturbed sleep Mm -hmm. patterns now sleep deprivation significantly impairs your brain function there are negative effects alertness performance these are likely due to a decrease in the activity of certain areas of the brain involved in higher thought processes so as a result you become incapable of putting events perhaps into the proper perspective and taking the appropriate action Mm -hmm. this makes you a very poor addition to a survival group 
stands to reason many car crashes, industrial accidents, or at least in part caused by lack of sleep. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they confirm 100,000 serious traffic accidents occur a year by people falling asleep at the wheel. And matter of fact, the British Medical Journal equates 17 to 21 hours without sleep as the equivalent of having a blood alcohol level of 0.8. Oh. How about that? Oh, wow. Now, when you don't get enough sleep, healing is delayed. Mm -hmm. The increased amount of muscle activity from not resting leads to the equivalent of physical overexertion. In a 2004 study, it evaluated the performance of medical residents, those getting less than four hours of sleep, wow, which four hours of sleep would have been great when I was a resident, uh, made twice the medical errors that residents who slept seven to eight hours a night did. As I can tell you from personal experience, that is a luxury, seven to eight hours, but I think they are now changing things so that residencies give their students and their interns a chance. Yes, they have they have new regulations that stipulate the amount of work hours as a maximum per certain number of days. So they can't work them 24 hours in a row. They can't work them a certain number of hours within a certain number of days. They have to have sleep. Yes. And this is imp- important so that they decrease those errors you were just talking yes. about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Sleep-deprived individuals don't realize they're functioning at an impaired level, and mm-hmm. so they make a lot of these errors. In addition to what's happening in your brain, the failure to get seven to eight hours of sleep every night causes a lot of other symptoms, irritability, depression, tremors, puffy bloodshot eyes, headaches, confusion, memory loss, muscle aches, gosh, just about every Some people even have hallucinations, psychotic symptoms. Of course, it doesn't do much good for high blood pressure or diabetes. And some people even get blackouts, sometimes called micro-sleeps, in which they just sort of nod off and then wake up. Or re- they even don't even look like they're nodding off. They just sort of are off. <laughs> Their body turns off for, for Yeah, just- they don't know what's happening. Actual brain damage has been also documented. There was a, a very prominent study performed at the University of California in which they used animal s- subjects and they found that non-rapid eye movement sleep, in other words, deep sleep, is necessary for turning off brain chemicals called neurotransmitters and allowing their receptors to replenish. The lack of deep sleep impairs mood and decreases the ability to learn. Deep sleep is also important to allow natural enzymes to repair damage caused by what we call free radicals, molecules responsible for aging and tissue damage. And the study showed that lack of rapid eye movement sleep, dreaming, also worsens depression. Depressed patients have depleted amounts of neurotransmitters in the brain. Sleep deprivation depletes them even further. Mm -hmm. Now, the treatment of sleep deprivation depends on the cause. The best start, I guess, is to consider a concept that we'll call sleep hygiene. We talk about personal hygiene. We talk about respiratory hygiene to mm-hmm. prevent flus and things like that from hitting your family. So let's talk about sleep hygiene. That Sleep hygiene is adjusting your behavior to maximize the amount of restful sleep you'll get. So you should consider adhering to a standard bedtime and wake-up time, same time every day if you possibly can, making your environment as comfortable as possible when for when you go to sleep, of course, avoiding nicotine, caffeine, alcohol before going to bed, Exercising regularly, but not before going to bed, which has a tendency to agitate and keep you up. Mm -hmm. Eliminating as much light as possible in the room at bedtime. That's very important. And staying away from heavy foods for at least two hours before going to sleep. That is important as well. And of course, it's important to keep your mind clear of stressful issues at bedtime. That is just not going to let you 
go to sleep. Just clear your mind. That's the very important. Now, this is very difficult to do in some scenarios like survival, long-term survival or mm-hmm. collapse scenarios. So do your best now to improve your sleep hygiene now before something happens and get into the best shape you possibly can. Of course, there are a lot of sleep aids that are available. Triozolam, lorazepam, temazepam, they're all PAMs. Right, mostly, you know, which are Ativan, Ambien, yeah, Lunesta, like Zoldepam. P-L- some Zolpidem. people use Xanax. Right, right. there are a number of, di- number of different ones. Then there's for- the over-the-counters. Right. I don't so- know if you're going to mention those. The Tylenol PM. Tylenol which PM, has, I believe Advil now has mm. one mixed with uh, Benadryl. But basically, the sleep, quote, sleep ingredient in that is the Benadryl. Right. And it's 50 milligrams. And that definitely does put you to sleep. And, and sometimes you'll feel almost like a hangover the next day. So be careful about the Benadryl. Don't take it at 4 a.m. if you have to wake up at 8 a.m. That's something you need to take at 9 or 10 p.m. if you expect to wake up by 8 a.m. Now, sleeping pills should never be used by those who have airway obstruction, sleep apnea issues, because what happens is it prevents them from waking up to breathe. To breathe, right. CPAP equipment, which keeps the airway open by air pressure, these are appropriate to use in people like this, but they're going to be obviously not around in austere environments. There are people who (coughs) have have written to us who said they have (coughs) made some sort of arrangements to continue to have the electricity. For these machines because they say they just can't sleep without them. Uh, my stepmother cannot sleep without one of these. So my dad has made some arrangements to at least for a, as long a period as possible to have electricity. Uh, I want to say something about melatonin. Everybody hears that that's helpful for sleep, but it only works or rather it works best in those who actually have documented low levels of the chemical. You can actually test for this mm-hmm. beforehand and see if this is actually will will work you know what many dr- uh, drugs that are taken by adults by the way have the opposite effect on children now, sometimes they become agitated when you take medicines that are actually would in an adult cause them to be which is exactly what usually benadryl does that's right you're 100 percent right well you know we have some natural sleep alternatives sleep aids would be chamomile tea <laughs> Cava root tea, lavender tea, valerian, especially valerian root tea, mm-hmm. catnip tea. These are things that are supposed to be very Passion useful. flower. Uh-huh, right. Things like that are very helpful. Now, good nutrition is important for general health. Some foods are also helpful in promoting a good night's sleep because they contain sleep-inducing or muscle-relaxing substances like melatonin, magnesium, or tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Oatmeal has melatonin in it. Milk has tryptophan in it. Almonds, they have tryptophan and magnesium. Bananas. But for the milk, you want to warm that up. Right. That's warm important. Milk. That's right. Uh, bananas, melatonin, and magnesium. And whole wheat bread actually helps release tryptophan into your system. That's interesting. Yoga, massage, meditation, sound machines, even acupuncture. These are alternative methods of dealing with sleep deprivation. Uh, Const- a good bath. A good a nice warm, warm bath. bath. That's good. That, absolutely. So anyhow... Consider making some lifestyle changes now so you'll be rest and prepared for whatever these uncertain times send your way. Hey, one of the scariest situations in survival that I can imagine is the epidemic outbreak in times of trouble where you just don't have access to modern hospitals, isolation rooms, all the things that you need. We've spoken about how to put together a good survival sick room that we haven't talked recently about the importance of face masks. Face masks are, of course, a standard medical supply in hospitals and just about everywhere else. 
that takes care of people that may have infectious diseases. And so, if you're going to be taking care of your family or survival group in situations where modern medical care is unavailable, I can't emphasize enough that you're going to want a good supply of these masks, gloves, and all sorts of other items in your medical storage. Without them, it's likely an infectious disease is going to affect every member of your family or group in times of trouble, including yourself. Medical masks are evaluated based upon their ability to serve as a barrier to very small particles. When we talk about small, I'm talking about really, really small. We're talking about fractions of microns. Mm-hmm. Now, little bitty particles still, however, can contain bacteria or viruses which are even smaller than they are. These masks that I'm talking about have been tested <clears throat> at an airflow rate that approximates human breathing, coughing, sneezing, pretty much everything that you would see in a, especially a respiratory epidemic. Mm -hmm. As well, masks are tested for their ability to tightly fit the average human face. The most commonly available face masks use ear loops or ties to fix them in place, although adhesive masks indeed are now being developed. Most masks are fabricated of what we call melt-blown, melt-blown coated fabric, providing better protection than woven cotton or gauze. Despite this, you need to know that masks do not confer complete immunity. Standard medical masks have a wide range of protection based on their fit and their barrier quality. Right. Three-ply masks are the most common type, and they're more breathable than, well, as you can imagine, six-ply masks, which Mm -hmm. are twice as thick. But six-ply masks present more of a barrier. Now, a tight fit's very, very important in providing a good amount of protection to infectious droplets. And so how would we appropriately make sure that a mask fits well? I've got someone who knows just what to say. Well, uh, actually, I just want to make a comment before we discuss how to put them on and do a fit test about the three-ply versus the six-ply. And think about it as being able to breathe through, say, a paper towel, a cheap one, or trying to breathe almost through a plastic bag. So the thicker this barrier is, which, of course, makes you more protected, the harder it becomes to breathe. So you have to sometimes give up being able to breathe so easily through the N95 for the added protection. So you have to think about what level of protection you need. And the surgical mask, I'm sure you're going to mention or did mention, is more likely to be put on the person who's coughing or sneezing. I don't know if you're going to talk about that. Yes, of course. Okay, great. So anyway, let's discuss how to put on a mask. Uh, Dr. Bones mentioned that there are loops for the ears. There are also ones that tie. Most of them have two ties. Now, you will wash your hands and put your gloves on first if they're non-sterile. If you're going to don sterile gloves for any purpose, then you will put the mask on before you put your gloves on. So you take the mask in your dominant hand and you... Put it with the side up that's going towards your face, and then you place it on your face. Hold it on your face. Take your non-dominant hand. Usually, they will have a metallic nose piece. This metallic nose piece runs from one cheek over the bridge of the nose to the other cheek, basically under the eye. And what that's doing is forming a fit for the odd shape of your nose, which Sticks Are out you from your my face. Nose has an odd shape. <laughs> no, right. it's just not a flat surface. You know, more like your cheeks. Although your cheeks are contoured and curved, um, you know, it's a prominence, and you have to make a shape over it. So you'll hold the mask on with your dominant hand. Take your non-dominant hand, and you're going to pinch this metal bar 
that's embedded in the mask and you're going to form a perfect fit over the bridge of your nose and under your eyes so that that metal is touching your face and your skin directly. What you don't want is to be tinted and away from your skin. If the nose piece or the nose metal is away from your face, you will not have a good seal. So that is the first thing you have to do. Make sure that metal bar forms your nose. Then you will tie it. And you can now release the mask because guess what? Your nose will help hold it on unless you're looking down. And it will sit on the bridge of your nose. You can take your hands and tie it behind your head. Sometimes these things come with elastic bands too. Yeah. If it has elastic bands, go ahead and put your elastic bands on first. Because that's the easiest thing to do. And again, you're going to hold the mask in your hand. You're going to take your non-dominant hand. Grab one of the loops. Usually the top one. So it would be the one that's on the top of your head. Put the mask to your face. Grab the loop. Bring it over your head so that the top loop is towards the top of your head. Sort of riding above your ear. Think about the angle above your ear. Sitting in the back of your head. Then take the lower loop elastic and bring that up over past the top loop and down so that the elastic is just basically under the earlobes and the back of the head. So now you've got a good position. If you're tying it, you can tie again, tie towards the top of your head and tie the bottom one towards the back of your head. There's also ones that are actually ear loops. I mean, it's really easier using your ears to hold them on. So that there's two loops and they just go behind the ears. I think those are hard to make tight, though. Yes, I believe so. Right. Now, how do you make sure that there's not gaps in the seal formed by the mask? What you're going to do is you're going to take your hands after you have put the mask on, tied it, put the loops on, and then fold the metal bar across your nose. Then you will take your hands and you will use your hands over your cheeks... Almost you're just feeling, feeling the mask. You're not pushing or pressing it tightly into your face. You're just feeling it. And you're going to take a deep breath in and you're going to see if the mask kind of folds in. If there's a seal or a leak on the side of your cheeks or underneath your chin, the air is going to go so quickly into your mask, you're not going to create a suction. You you almost want to feel... A little bit of a give of the mask towards your face so that you you feel like you're kind of, it's a little bit hard to take a breath if it feels too easy to take a breath you probably have a leak somewhere and you're going to have to adjust either the nose bar or the ties or the loops also check the position of your chin if it's too far down if for some reason it's away from your face too much you may have an issue Now, these fit tests are primarily for the N95s and the N100s. So after you breathe in, now you're going to breathe out. Does the mask fall away from your face when you're breathing out? If so, you may need to make it a little tighter on your head. Right, and if you feel any air coming out... Escaping from your cheeks. Yes. exactly. Yes, so if if it escapes too easily, then you may again have a leak. And you may feel that air escape... Or come in around your cheeks or your chin. So you want to check for that. Or or if you're loose uh, just below your eyes, you might actually feel the air escape and blow into your eyes. Right. Like a little wind. Right. So you want to check for that. You really want the best fit possible. These new masks that Dr. Bones was discussing that, that may come out with adhesive 
around them. That would make a big. That could make a big difference. Have you seen them out yet? Are they? Are they actually believe, on the market? I there yeah. are some on They're the not market. popular, I'll tell no. you that. Not yet. No. <laughs> They're it's probably much more expensive, expensive, which is the issue. Yeah, Anytime is you add a product or a, a new inventive way of, of using something that's been standard, uh, they're expensive for a while. So... If the adhesive ones, if you happen to have those, those are going to be much better. But you're still going to want to do a fit test. You want to make sure that the adhesive is also touching all around the part of the mask to your skin. I, I have one thing to add. If you have a lot of facial hair, you're not going to have a good fit to your mask. So you may have Absolutely to sacrifice right. that snazzy beard. And the same thing goes for the respirators. The, the ones that, you know, people have been using with the hood. Those are very expensive. If, if you end up with one of those, you need to get special training for it. Um, yeah, they can be up to $1,000. A, a little they're complicated. Called, <laughs> they're called Purified Air Personal Respirators, uh, PAPRs. Right, and uh, they have a built-in uh, air pump, I guess is yes. the best way to put it. And, with a uh, filtration system, right. a ventilation system, exactly. They want to make sure that you're getting purified air that you're sucking in, even though that unit is behind your body, actually in your yeah, the small sort of, like of your fanny, back, it's like a fanny pack. Exactly, it's, but in the opposite direction because it sits right above your buttocks. Yes. Uh, but still, viruses and bacteria can get back there, float around. We know that they can be carried for long distances if they're very small, especially the viruses. So they do have a filtration system. So you can be more comfortable that the air that you're breathing in is not contaminated. Yeah, in the hospitals now, the CDC recommends use of these $1,000 items for their infectious disease isolation, isolation units. And that, however, is probably not something you're going to have, I guess, the funds and resources yeah. to have very many of those. So let's we, talk we, about... We checked into them. Right, yes. Very expensive. We thought about getting one. Right. Well, let's talk about what people probably can afford. Yes. And, you know, it's uh, what we call the N95 masks. Uh, N95 medical masks are a class of disposable respirator masks that have at least 95% efficiency against particles that are 0.3 microns in size or greater, 0.5 some people say. Which are the ones that can more easily float around. Right. Now, these masks protect against many contaminants. They're not 100% effective. That's why they're called N95s. They protect you against about 95% of particles. There are N99 masks and N100 masks that protect you for against 99% and 99.7 something percent. Right. But... These are much more expensive, so I'm trying yes. to talk, I'm trying to stick with most things that are uh, affordable and, and can be accumulated in quantity for medical storage. Right, I will say that the N95s, you can find those in a bulk much cheaper than you can individually. So if you're looking to stock up on N95s. Try not to buy just one. Yeah, buy a box to, of 50, exactly, box of 100. Exactly. You're going to find uh, much more value there. Absolutely. Now, the N in N95 stands for non-oil resistant. This is a type that's used most commonly in medical circumstances, but there are also R95 masks, which are oil resistant, and there are P95 masks, which are oil proof, and these are mostly used in industrial, industrial and agricultural use. Painting, yes. painters use. Painters, things like different that. Different masks, exactly. Exactly. Now, many of these masks, by the way, have a, a square or round exhalation valve, exhalation valve in the middle, and this helps with breathability. 
None of these masks, however, these masks, by the way, I just to let you know, they don't cover the eyes. They're, none of them are protective against gases like chlorine. So for this, you would need an actual gas mask like you see in science fiction movies, perhaps. And that's a whole different animal with special types of filters. The importance of face shields and hoods has been recognized by the CDC. And these items cover your entire face in front and to the sides, preferably to the ears. These are sort of plastic. They're called full, the actual face, description is face right, right, full face shields. Right. Now, there are different lengths, so you have to be careful about your length. There are three-quarter and there are full, so make sure you get the full length. Now, if you have a face shield, you have to continue to wear a mask. You do have to wear a mask yes. with a face shield. With these uh, PAPRs, these uh, very special $1,000 respirator units, you don't actually. Right, because they fully cover your face. Right. And your and your neck and your, and your head, shoulders right? and, yeah, and the your, whole your whole shebang. head your whole head's covered. So that so that's a different thing. So what's the most reasonable strategy? You need both standard regular medical masks and N95 masks, maybe even some face shields as part of your medical supplies. And I would recommend a significant number of each. The masks will become contaminated once they're worn for a while. They got to be discarded. Now, there's no absolute standards with regards to who wears what in the sick room. What You were mentioning something about that? Yeah, I was actually um, discussing who should wear what because you have all these masks and people, most people generally don't think of putting a mask on a sick person. They think of, oh, this is for me to protect myself. However, if you're going into a room, your sick room that you've created, and you're going to take care of a patient... Have a box of the standard surgical masks, the cheap ones, at the bedside for the patient and, and yell in there, put your mask on. If they're able to move, hopefully they will be, have them put their mask on. Those are just the usually the tied ones. Uh, there are some with loops, but the ties are the cheapest ones. So have them tie it on, tie it above their head, below their, their head in the back, and then use the metal bar and then you can go in. What that will do is help filter some of the sneezing and coughing and exhalation virus and bacteria-laden air so that you won't get that. You will put on the N95s or the N100s so that you have some filtration to the air that you're inhaling. So now you've got two protections You've got the patient wearing the standard surgical mask and you wearing the N95 or the N100 so that it's a good barrier. It's two barriers, two protection levels, which is better than one. That's right. And so I think in this way you can give affordably great level of protection to the medical personnel also be able to deal with the, the people that are sick. Remember, your highest priority as medics is to protect yourself and the healthy members of your group. That is most important. You don't want infectious diseases to run rampant among your people. you got to isolate those that might be contagious. Have plenty of masks as well as gloves, aprons, antiseptics, things like that. Pay careful attention to every aspect of hygiene. Your survival may depend on it. Hey, we're honored to be part of the expert council of Jack Spierko, our good friend's survival podcast, one of the most popular survival shows that are on the internet and we oftentimes get questions from Jack's listeners regarding various types of medical topics and we had one on eye injuries and something we haven't talked about in a little bit 
So we decided to add this segment of the Expert Council Question Hour to our show so that we can really give you a good outline of what to do about eye injuries in times of trouble. Hey, Survival Podcast fans, this is Joe Alton, MD of doomandbloom.net, that old Dr. Bones, and my mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Today's Expert Council question comes from Joel from Northwest Washington. Joel asks, how can eye injuries be treated in a post-SHTF situation? Things I'm thinking of are as simple as abrasions or as complicated as debris lodged in the eye itself. Joel, the human body is a miracle of engineering. The conformation of your skull is such that your eyes are slightly recessed in bony sockets, which helps protect them from injury. Despite this, there are many different activities of daily living or daily survival that can be traumatic to your eyes. Some of them, like burning your eye with a curling iron, it probably isn't going to happen in a collapse, but flying splinters from chopping wood or grease splatter from cooking still will be an issue. The grand majority of these injuries are avoidable with a little planning. You should probably be encouraging your people to use eye protection for a lot of daily survival chores. Few people wear eye protection, for example, when they're cooking outdoors, but conditions aren't as controlled as indoors and injuries can occur. Yeah, I know it sounds like overkill, but I guarantee that someone in your group will one day injure their eye doing something that eye protection goggles would have prevented from happening. Now, usually the victim is going to present with you with eye pain. In addition, expect the eye to be tearing up and the conjunctiva, which is the membrane that covers the white part of the eye, will be red or very bloodshot. They'll be blinking fast and furious. Now, a foreign object is going to be the most likely cause of the problem. It's up to you to find it. Use a moist cotton swab or Q-tip to lift and evert the eyelid. That is, turn it inside out. This doesn't hurt. This will allow you to effectively examine the area. Now, a syringe full of clean water can be used as irrigation to flush the foreign object out, or you can use an eye cup filled with the solution, tilt their head back, flush it that way. Alternatively, you can touch the foreign object lightly with a Q-tip to dislodge it. It'll be rare for a foreign object to actually impale the eye. You'll need a high-speed impact for this to occur, and that's mostly seen in things like explosions. This will be difficult to remove if it does happen, and even in the best of circumstances, expect some scarring and some loss of vision if it's on the cornea or pupil. Let's say you looked and there is no foreign object. Take a really close look at the cornea. The cornea is a clear layer of tissue over the colored part of the eye, which is called the iris, and it exists for purposes of protection and also to help with focusing. Now, when this layer of tissue is scratched or damaged, it's usually called a corneal abrasion. This type of injury is pretty common even today, even in those, or especially in those actually, who wear contact lenses. The patient will probably complain to you that they feel that there is a grain of sand in their eye. Eye doctors place a dye called fluorescein staining on the eye so that they can evaluate and see the actual scratch. You may or may not see the scratch, but you should consider that that is the most likely thing that has happened. Now, that corneal abrasion is going to need to rest and heal. After cleaning the eye out with water and using antibiotic eye drops, if you have them, cover the closed eye with an eye pad and tape. Now, many recommend covering both eyes as the open eye is going to move around and the closed eye will follow its movements, and that's not really giving the eye rest. Ibuprofen is useful for pain relief, and over the next few days, the eye should heal by itself. 
This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening, and hey, be sure to check out our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, on blogtalkradio.com. Thanks again. Well, that's all the time we have for the Survival Medicine Hour. We thank you very much for listening. This is Joe Alton, MD, for Amy Alton, ARMP, also known as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. These days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment necessary to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy to read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.